This morning we are continuing our study of Mark, one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you should have an outline in front of you there that says the cleansing power of Jesus. The cleansing power of Jesus. Now, the book of Mark, just to remind you, because this is the 52nd sermon, uh, the longest series so far. We spent 50 sermons in Judges, we are going way beyond that. This is the 52nd sermon in Mark. And um, just to remind you that Mark, of course, is divided in three parts. We are dividing it in three parts. Mark chapter 1 to chapter, one to chapter 8 uh, is the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. Uh, this is where he is, the province of Galilee. This evening we're going to see him leave Galilee a little bit, so we are defining that only in a broad sense. Uh, from chapter 8 to chapter 10 covers the journey to Jerusalem as Jesus makes his way. Uh, along the way we are going to meet uh, the blind man Bartimaeus, which is uh, another of my favorite uh, passages in the scriptures. I probably should just say the Bible is my favorite book. So, but we're going to meet blind, the blind man Bartimaeus on the way to Jerusalem. And from chapter 11 to chapter 16 is Jesus in Jerusalem. And uh, he's going to be in Gethsemane, we're going to see the cross, uh, but we are far away uh, from that at the moment. Well, not too far, we'll get there. Uh, trust me on that. So, but we are still in the first part of Mark, right? In the ministry in Galilee. And for those of you who are here last Sunday evening, we started looking at chapter 7. And we saw that the context of chapter 7 is that from verse 1 to 14, is that Jesus is in Gennesaret, we think. And religious leaders have come from Jerusalem uh, to, old, <laughs> to, to take him to task. The Pharisees and the scribes have come. We see that in verse 1 of chapter 7. And while they are there, they see that the followers of Jesus are eating with unwashed hands. And of course, this is a problem for the Pharisees because the Pharisees don't do that. They follow the traditions of the elders. And the elders, they, they have long look to, uh, those who, who, if you like, put together the oral law, said, you're not supposed to do this. So I'm not going to rehash what we looked at last Sunday evening. Uh, that's basically just giving you the context of where we're at. The argument of the Pharisees uh, is that they want Jesus and everyone else to keep all the man-made rules they believe as a way to God. They believe for you to really be accepted by God, you need all of these traditions. Not the law, actually. I mean, the law is there, but in addition to the law, they say you need these man-made rules, which they have just made up, of course. And so in verse 5, they ask Jesus this question. Why are your disciples behaving like this? And Jesus responds to them and says in verse 6 to 13, is a response to them. And we will summarize that response, which we looked at last Sunday evening, as Jesus effectively saying that the religious leaders are misguided hypocrites. They are misleading everyone. They are wrong to insist on these man-made rules because God does not need human rules to help him decide how you should be worshipped. God has actually revealed his own commandments, actually, that defines our worship should be. And they say it, or Mark chapter 7 says that. This is what Jesus says to them. You leave the commandment of God and the ought to the tradition of man. Most importantly, 
worship of man is not even about rules. Whether they come from God or they come from man, it's not about rules. It is about worship from the heart. That's what verse 6 to verse 7 of Mark chapter 7 says. We looked at it last Sunday evening. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. The essence of what Jesus said is that true worship is from the heart. But there's a problem. Our hearts are polluted by sin. How can we ever worship God from the heart if our hearts are polluted by sin? So the question really the Pharisees and all of us need to ask is this. How can we have hearts that truly worship God? Worship is from the heart, but the heart is polluted. So how can we worship God truly from the heart as Jesus was? And this is the question Jesus addresses from verse 14 to verse 23. And just this morning, I just want to make two observations that Jesus makes from here that helps us answer that question. And they're in front, they're in your outline there. The first question Jesus wants us to, the first thing Jesus wants us to understand is that everyone is polluted. Everyone is contaminated by sin. Mom, dad, husband, wife, the whole world, the prime minister to the youngest person. In the womb, even. Everyone is polluted by sin. And we see in verse 14 to 21, this truth, because Jesus is addressing the people, not the Pharisees. He's already addressed the Pharisees, but now he turns to the people. And the key word, when we scan from verse 14 to verse 23, that Jesus uses here is the word defiled. You can spot it there how many times it is used. Look at verse 15. Jesus says there is nothing outside a person that by going in can what? Defile him. Verse 18. And he said to them, Are you without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Verse 20. And he said, Whatever comes out of a person, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Verse 23. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This word defile is at the heart of this passage. And it is the same word that Pharisees use when they complain to Jesus in verse 5, don't they? That's what they are complaining about. Now, 20 years ago, the citrum, I have to say the word proper, I think it might be the Kitaram, I don't know how the Indonesians spell it. The Kitaram River, in, I'll say it that way, was thriving with lots of fish there. It was one of the amazing rivers of the world. But if you go there today, the fishermen do not catch fish. They fish for garbage. And that is because 20,000 tons of waste and the 340 tons of waste water from 2,000 textile factories are disposed directly into this once clear and pristine river, the Kitara. It is actually now the most polluted river in the world. 
And so when we think of the word defile, Jesus wants us to have the same image of the human heart. It means that it is polluted, contaminated, full of worst, full of the worst sins. When God looks at the human heart in its natural state, it's repulsive to him. It's abhorrent. He can't stand it. It is like the Kitaram River. How the Kitaram River looks to us is how God sees the human heart in its natural state. But you see, the Pharisees' belief understand that, actually, because they're using the word defile. But you see, what the Pharisees believe is that everyone else is polluted like that, right? Except them. Because they're keeping rules, and they believe these rules they're keeping are making them clean before God, right? But Jesus says this is not true, you see. Because we are not just polluted because we swim in a polluted river. We are born with polluted hearts. It is the heart that is the issue here. Look at, let's read verse 20 to verse 23. He makes this point here. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, out of your human heart, comes out evil thoughts, sexual immorality, envy, slander, pride. I've actually jumped, haven't I? Coverting wickedness, deceit, sensuality. Verse 23 says all of these things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus is saying their heart is a problem. And in case you doubt that your heart is a problem, Jesus gives you these 12, 13 sins. You could count them, I think. Some say 12, but I say 13 sins here. That just gives you as an example. This is like a snapshot. It's a sample. It's just a statistical sample from the human heart, right? And, and, and he just gives you this to help you just compare yourself, just to confirm what he said. It's an, it's an illustration, so to speak. And I think we can group these 13 sins, actually, in three classes, really. To summarize this, I, I summarize them in three groups. First of all, we have, we have polluted thoughts. Polluted thoughts. Look at verse 21. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. What are evil thoughts? Evil thoughts are thoughts which offend God that we allow to take all of us and we start delighting in them. It's not just every thought that fires through. Aquinas said it's thoughts that we cling to and take delight in. And I think that's correct. Those are evil thoughts and they distinguish temptation from evil thoughts. That's an important distinction to make, and you can chat to me about if you can explore that question a bit further afterwards. We don't have time to go into it, but I'll just make that point that these are evil thoughts. We have, we have polluted thoughts. The second thing we have is that we have polluted attitudes. Polluted attitudes. Our Lord here gives four examples of sinful attitudes. Did you notice them? Coveting, envy, pride, and foolishness. What's foolishness? Senselessness, really. That's foolishness. <laughs> Everything is senseless. Wild living, we might even say. Wild thinking. And we do all these things. We don't have time. We, could have, we would need 13 sermons to examine, or, if, or perhaps three, to look at each of these classes. But just look at the issue of envy. You might think I'm not envious. 
But look at the issue of envy. What is envy? Let's just take it as an example. Envy is being discontent with what you have and longing for things that others have to be yours. Maybe you, are, you live in a small house and you see another person in a bigger one and you start feeling sad and restless. You are right before when you went jogging, but you, <laughs> you look at the drive, it looks better, and you think, oh, I can't have that. Oh, why, why must she have that? You just weep. You, all of a sudden you're not happy because you see somebody else has that. You wish that was you. You become Mrs. Grumpelot. We've been reading a book with the kids. Another book is called Mrs. Grumpelot. You know, we wish our house was better, uh, everything was better. She's never happier when she sees other people. And all of us are like that. We, uh, my neighbor has got a large, large, large television. Right? Massive. I'm like, wow, imagine Star Trek on that. <laughs> that would be great. For a minute, then I have to repent. Lord, take my heart and seal it. Uh, we are like that. We are envious. We envy careers, don't we? There are moments in my life when I, when I look at some of the, 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 the great economists of, of, of the past or present, and I'm thinking, oh, that could, be, that could, have, that could have been me. Um, and you wish you were like that. You look at families, uh, we want, some of us want bigger families, don't we? We wish we have one child, you look at that thinking, yeah, it'd be good to have a bigger family. You, you find yourself envying uh, that sometimes. Churches, pastors, you look at churches, I was at the church yesterday, uh, at GBP, GBP, time of praise and worship in Dunstable, and you, pastors came up and they were showing how much life was there in their church, and for a moment I'm like, wow. <laughs> well, I wish I had that. Uh, but yeah, envy. Envy comes to all of us. Gifting. We, we long for those things. You know. The list is endless. Uh, all of us have this. This is an example. We have polluted attitudes. And also there are polluted actions here. And Jesus gives us eight examples. So polluted thoughts, polluted attitudes, and polluted actions. Eight examples are given here. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, wickedness, deceit. Ponder on the word wickedness, by the way. Just trying to understand it perhaps this afternoon, what that word means. Dig into it. Deceit, sensuality, and slander. That's just part of the sample. We do all of these things, actually, all the time. Perhaps we do all of them for many of us. And we can explain why that's the case. But take murder, for example. Did you know you are a murderer on the same level as ISIS and other West killers? Did you know that? Did you know that? You're probably offended because you have never killed anyone. But in the Bible, murder includes withholding love from other people. And we're all guilty of that. First John chapter 3, verse 15 says this, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know, this is worrying, you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. That's very worrying indeed. So time prevents us from examining these sins. In, uh, perhaps in future we might do that at the end of Mark. We might do that. But the point is clear, isn't it? All of us are polluted, are polluted people in thought, in attitude, and in action. And that's a big problem. You are cut off from the very life of God by default. And the question you have to ask yourself this morning is this, do you believe Jesus when he says the human heart is polluted? 
Or are you standing with the Pharisees who thinks you are okay? This is the big question Jesus is posing to you this morning. Do you believe in him or do you believe the Pharisees? Because all roads begin here. To, if you like, our journey of faith begins here. You cannot have life with God if you are believing the Pharisees over Jesus. You've got to accept Jesus' assessment of your heart, of your natural condition. You see, the first thing that God does before he makes us his children is that he sends his light that shines the light on the pollution and contamination of the human heart. That's what he does. He shines a torch. He says, look how, how much waste is being poured. And so you must ask yourself whether you have come to that position of truly accepting this, not as an intellectual proposition, but here in the heart. This truth has grabbed hold of you, and you sense the sinfulness of your heart. You need to do that because if you don't do that, you cannot benefit from the, the second point, which is the good news of this passage. The second point and the final point is that, first of all, everyone is polluted, but the good news is only Jesus makes us clean. Only Jesus does that. No one else. And I know the world, as you sit here, you've got lots of people telling you otherwise. You've got yourself telling you you can pull yourself by the bootstrap. You can clean the heart. But only Jesus can clean your heart. Last week, Prince Harry gave a speech to a group of young people. I think it was at Wembley Arena, I think. And as we listened to Harry, the speech revealed a lot about how Harry and his generation sees the world. The young prince said this. Well, he's not young anymore. You are the most engaged generation in history. You don't judge someone on how they look, where they come from, or how they identify. He's having a dig at us there who, who, who criticizes gender madness. Harry goes on to say, you see the world for what it is. Vibrant, colorful, mixed, and full of promise. You don't sit back and wait for solutions. You take action. I'm trying to find which young people is talking to here. Not the ones I'm seeing that are murdering themselves on the streets of London. He says, every day you are indebted with an overexposure of mainstream media and social media. But listen to Harry, but you don't let them sway you. I mean, wow. So after Prince Harry shares his delusion that young people are not being influenced by social media, he goes on to encourage them. Listen to this. Be braver. Be stronger. Be kind to each other. Be kind to yourselves. Have less screen time. More face-to-face -face time. Exceed expectations. Eliminate plastics. Conserve water. I know, just be that. Protect wildlife. Keep empathy alive. Ask your friends how they are doing and listen to the answer. Change your thoughts and change the world. Dare to be the greatest generation of all time. That's just a summary of the speech. He did have a slight dig at older generation uh, because he says the current generation is better than the previous one. 
inspirational stuff in some parts, right? But when you look at it, when you think, listen to Ari, it is the same New Age sound vibes. Keep empathy alive. Dig deep in the heart. Tap into the energy as it were. And actually, funny enough, it is not different from the empty rhetoric of the Pharisees, the empty approach of the Pharisees. Because what Harry and the Pharisees have in mind is that they think my generation does not have polluted acts. It is everyone outside, you hear what Harry was saying? It is everyone outside my tribe, outside my millennial generation that is the sinner. It is us, the millennials, who can change the world. And he's saying, basically, look, to really fix these sinners, we the perfect ones, my generations, needs to work harder and change the world. And we can do it. Dare to be the greatest generation of all time. Harry is a modern Pharisee. And the truth is that many of us are like him, actually. Deep down, our hearts are not different from Harry. We believe we can fix our inner pollution. But Jesus here is saying, we can't. Let's read again verse 18 to verse 20. And he said to them, Then are you also, he's speaking to the disciples, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared, all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Now, on the surface, what Jesus is saying is that eating food does not make us sinners, right? That's obvious from the text. Food ends up in the stomach, but actually sin begins in the heart, out, and goes out, so to speak. And here is the point Jesus is making. The, the reason Jesus is saying this is to correct the Pharisees who believe that by doing good things, they can keep themselves free from sin. If we only ate less food, or if we only cleaned our hands, we would be better. But Jesus says, that's not possible. The Pharisees think like Harry. They think we can save ourselves through effort. Jesus is saying, we can't, because the problem is not what we do. Listen to this. The problem is not what we do, but who we are. It is who we are that is the problem, not what we do. We are sinners. That is our identity. We are polluted from within. So the only way we can be clean is by God coming himself from outside to clean us up. And that's what God has done in Jesus. And we know that's what Jesus is pointing that to us because of the comment that Mark makes here. Did you miss it? In brackets. You might be wondering why that is in brackets. He says this, thus he declared all foods clean. Why is that in brackets? Well, Mark didn't write in brackets, right? But it's in brackets, really, for us, for our benefit as we read this version in English, because it's, a, it's reminding us this is a comment that Mark is making for his non-Jewish readers. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. What is that about? Well, the law was given to Israel in the Old Testament to make a distinction between clean and unclean foods. We read that in Leviticus 11, verse 1 to 47. Why did God make this distinction in Leviticus between clean and unclean foods? 
Well, for two reasons, I think. First of all, it was to instill in Israel an awareness of God's holiness. To just remind them there are things that God finds clean, and there are things God doesn't find clean, because he's holy. And from that also, God wanted to, make, to remind them that their sin, their uncleanness, was a barrier to the fellowship with God. So if you dabble in the unclean stuff, you can't access God, because God is clean. So, remind them this distinction and remind them that sin is a barrier between them and God. But the law was only a temporary solution because within the law there is a prophetic element to the law. And we'll deal with this when we look at law and grace, a series of sermons and that. But essentially the law was meant to be temporary because the law never dealt with the real problem of the human heart. In fact, the law was given to point us Jesus. The law anticipated God coming to remove this wickedness from our hearts. Remove the defilement of sin by giving us a new heart. And when Mark says thus, he declared all foods clean, what Mark is saying, the lawgiver has come. The one who made this distinction has come. And by virtue of the fact that Jesus, like a judge, can strike down laws in parliament, so to speak. You know, judges do that, because judges are more powerful than parliament, parliament before judges can strike down the law. Jesus, in the same way, as God now, who gave the law, can say, now I'm declaring all things clean. Just as I gave you the law at Sinai, now I'm making all, things, all foods clean. Because Jesus is God. He's saying, I have come to fulfill the law. You no longer need this distinction because I'm here. Jesus is the end of the law, Paul tells us. He's the fulfillment. The law was like a shadow that pointed to the reality that is Jesus. And because Jesus has now come, we don't have to have this worry about clean and unclean food. Everything can be eaten in Nando's. Right. There's no need to worry about that. Really, you can go to any restaurant and just eat nicely. Thank God from a clean heart. Ask him to bless the food and of course eat it. We can now be made truly clean because Jesus has fulfilled the law, has lived a perfect life and is gone to the cross to offer himself as a sacrifice against the offenses of the law. He's kept the law and is gone to the cross and died for us. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But not only that, Jesus does not only just save us by fulfilling the Lord, Jesus actually, by fulfilling the Lord and dying on the cross for our sins, Jesus comes as a heart surgeon that cracks open that polluted chest of ours, the heart. He removes that dead, polluted heart and replaces it with his own clean heart that longs to love and please God. A heart plugged into the very life of God as we are learning in Second Peter in our Bible studies. You see, rather than telling us to change, Jesus creates the change. He gives you a new heart. He connects you to the divine life of God. The, the, the Holy Spirit now begins to flow through your spiritual veins. This is what we call conversion, isn't it? That's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is not a person who keeps a long list of rules. A Christian is a person who can say, God has cracked 
opened my chest and has given me a new heart. But in order for us to receive this new heart, we have to obey verse 14. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Verse 18 says, And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? What is going on here with hearing and understanding? Well, Jesus is taking us back to Mark chapter 4, verse 1 to 20. We learned there that truly listening is to Jesus means accepting his truth, understanding his truth, and repenting so that we can produce good and lasting fruit. It is listening and truly trusting. Many people come to fellowship on Sunday morning and hear the word of God preached, but it goes in and it comes out and they never find saving faith. Hell will be, of course, full of uh, you know, people who could really easily pass uh, uh, a PhD in theology because they sat, heard, they heard, they listened, but they never understood. The word of God never took all of them to true repentance. Their lives never bore fruit in keeping with repentance from a changed heart. So, really listening starts with us acknowledging how this polluted heart and throwing yourself completely at the mercy of Jesus to save you. You cannot be made clean until you come to Jesus and tell him, Lord, I fully surrender my life to you. I am a sinner. Do to me as you like. And the proof that you have truly turned to Jesus is that you have also turned from sin. Repentance is a turning to God and away from sin. It, it involves both. Because not, not because turning from sin saves you, but because the turning to God shows that you've turned away from sin. The proof is that true repentance comes with a clear break from sin and new affections towards God, regardless of the cost to us. And those who truly entrust Jesus in this way, trust Jesus this way, have a new life, new life with God, a new heart. They are free from the eternal punishment from God. Now, let us be clear that repentance itself does not make us clean. It is the blood of Jesus, the cleansing blood of Jesus, that cleans us from sin. God only accepts our repentance because Jesus has died for us. And yet it is true that without turning to Jesus, we cannot be clean of sin. There will be no one in heaven who has not truly repented. Without a doubt. There will be no one in heaven. Except infants, of course, in the womb or like that, or very young, young children. But for those who can grasp the truth, and the Lord knows they can, there will be no one who hasn't truly repented, who will be in heaven. And so the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, are you truly trusting in the blood of Jesus? Is there true and clear evidence that you have received a new heart that has clearly broken free from sin. Are you growing in loving our Lord Jesus? 
You may know the theological facts. You may be respected as a saint by some. But if your heart is not new, if there is no growing evidence of growing affection for Jesus, you stand condemned. You will die in your sin. So we must here examine our hearts. Have we truly received a new heart? If not, we must come to Jesus, ask him to receive, to give you a new heart. I don't know who here is going to heaven. I don't. And anything we do in the church, membership, these things, you must not take those things as my view that you're going to heaven. No. <coughs> Take that as me saying that the Lord is greater than I am. And the Lord has moved somehow in your heart to give you a testimony. And in good faith we accept that. And we invite you into our membership. But only the Lord sees the heart. Only the Lord sees my heart. And therefore all of us must examine ourselves continuously. Paul says, am I standing in the faith? And if we have that inner assurance that God gives us, then rejoice in that. Rejoice that you have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Be filled with thankfulness. Maybe you have recently stumbled in some sin and you've confessed your sin to God and you feel the burden of that sin still. It is weighing on you. Well, if you know you have truly repented, then Look to Jesus. He's saying, I have cleansed you from sin forever. Past, present, and future. You are mine. If he's given you that assurance, hold on to it. Know that Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Know that Jesus is saying, there can never be any distance between you and me. My sacrificial death has accomplished everything for you. You are now standing in the very presence of God. Beloved, let this passage say to your heart, if you have truly repented and trusting in Jesus. Let it chase away any worries. Let it fuel your heart to sing and dance with joy before God. And I think we should hear it also as a, as a church as we come now before the Lord's table, isn't it? Because as we come before God, before the Lord's table, we recognize as we've been reading Acts 2 verse 42 every Saturday morning. As we are confessing through that passage, we recognize that we do not love each other as we should as a church. We sin in that. We know we don't prioritize the breaking of bread. The evening communion is the least attended Sunday meeting. We know that. We know we are dead in our prayers. There are far too many times when only a handful of people meet here for prayers. There have been times when there's just two of us praying for this church. We treat talking to God as useless thing, a repulsive thing to us that we don't judge as having any value. We are horrible to our loving Savior in so many ways. A Savior who has given us his life. Corporately here, we do not, as, we, as I look at this element, I realize that I don't deserve a place at the table of Christ. 
And as a church, we don't deserve that. We know that. And yet the miracle of this passage is a miracle, isn't it? That yet in all our imperfections, we are welcome. This passage is saying, you stand somehow still, cleansed of all our sins, of your sins, by my precious blood. As a church, we stand not filthy, not, but cleansed. Not dressed in our own robes of filth, as it were, but dressed in white robes of Jesus, dipped in blood. We stand in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, we can come before the Lord's table, approach it with confidence, thankfulness for the cleansing power of Jesus. We do, in some sense now, belong at the table. We can't have this because Jesus cried out, isn't it? It is finished. Amen.